760, 760, who will follow Jesus? And I'm thankful for men like Bob who've dedicated their lives to being able to supply that and to, to offer some things. And so it's been a great weekend all the way around, uh, capped off by the pinnacle of the weekend of being able to gather together and worship God in spirit and in truth this morning. We are continuing our series of lessons this morning in the book of 2 Timothy. So if you have your Bibles, we encourage you to open there, 2 Timothy chapter 1. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know that we have entitled this series of lessons called Famous Last Words. We're taking section by section the, the letter and just applying one word overviews to each section. It sounds extremely simplistic, but if you were having to wrestle with the text all week to, to eliminate certain things, then you would know it's probably a more difficult task than it feels like or that it seems like. At least it's a greater undertaking than I thought it would be as we entered into this series of lessons. Our word for this morning is unashamed. It's actually going to be found, the concept is going to be found three different times in the text. Before we get to the text, I want you for a moment, if you can, to get in the heart or the mind of one or both primary players in this text. I want you to think for a moment about the mindset that Timothy might have had as he reads this letter. Now again, this has to be conjecture or supposition based on the context and and, and, and the wording of, of, of the letter, because we're not told what Timothy was thinking. Uh, but I think about Timothy in this setting, in this scenario, knowing everything that we know in Scripture that's happened in the brotherhood and in his life up to this point. And here's the conclusion that I've come to. Timothy may very well have been thinking, where is the joy? Where is the victory? Where is the deliverance? For centuries, the Jews had waited on Messiah to come to liberate them, to overthrow Rome, to restore their land. There have been promises made in the latter half of Isaiah about peace and about tranquility and about freedom. Yet, there were still wars. The, the Jewish people were still enslaved and the church had started, but it was under intense persecution. You add to that that Timothy's mentor... And father in the faith was in prison awaiting death. And Timothy couldn't get to him. He, he couldn't see him. The, the place where Paul had left him at Ephesus had false teachers and, and, and struggles. It was to that eldership that Paul had warned them out of them would come false teachers to draw away disciples after themselves. Timothy may have very well been thinking, is this really what I signed up for? Is this really what Christianity is all about? Is this what being a minister of the gospel is? No one listens to me anymore because the message is offensive. My mentor is on death row. 
Christianity has brought me anxiety and discomfort. If you can feel just a fraction of the despondency that Timothy probably had in his heart, you can understand the mindset of the one receiving this letter. But I think it's necessary also for us to be able to get into the heart and mind of the Apostle Paul for just a moment and understand why he writes. Paul had given everything short of his life for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he would soon, according to chapter 4, give his life for the gospel. He had been abandoned and forsaken. He was alone in Rome. He was without friend or defense. And if Timothy deserts, I believe Paul feels that sting all the way to Rome. Just read the first two and a half chapters of 1 Thessalonians and see how the heart of Paul was in anguish over not knowing whether or not the brethren in Thessalonica had turned away from the truth because of persecution. If he felt that much anxiety and that much worry and concern and was despondent that much about what might have happened, suppose had he learned for sure that Timothy had, how it would have crushed his heart, shattered his expectations, and no doubt brought tears to the eyes of this aged apostle. It's with those two thoughts in mind that we come to our text this morning from chapter 1, verses 8 through the end of the chapter. And we consider this challenge of Paul to Timothy to not be ashamed. Now, I believe that Paul reveals this challenge in a series of exhortations, five of them to be exact. We're not going to have five points because I believe that that you can couch them or or gather them together in different sections. And so really we'll only have three. But I believe there are five exhortations found in this section of Scripture that will help Timothy not to be ashamed and hopefully, prayerfully, have something for us before we leave this morning. Number one, Paul gives a preemptive prohibition. He gives a preemptive prohibition beginning in chapter 8, or verse 8 rather, the beginning of the passage. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. That's how he starts the section. I believe it's the driving force, the the thought behind, and, and the focus of the entire section. Therefore, because, going back to what we talked about last week, because God has given to us a a spirit of of love and of power, not of timidity, but of discipline. Because of that, Timothy, do not be ashamed of me. Now, there there are two ways to write a prohibition in the Greek language. One is you can prohibit something from continuing that's already happening. So the prohibition would be to stop, to continue no longer, Don't do it again. Don't return back to it. Then there is the prohibition that's preemptive. The one that that prohibits an action or an attitude before it starts. Because I believe it's the second that's going on here in our text. I don't believe that that Timothy has actually become ashamed. That he's actually stopped. That he's actually deserted. But there's the potential. There's the possibility of that. And so Paul gives that preemptive warning. 
So as we gather together with the Lord's people this morning, people who, who have just sang and, sang and, and verified and, and declared, I am not ashamed to own my Lord. What a tremendous refrain. What an amazing commitment that we just made. Yet could Paul not stand here today and offer us the same preemptive prohibition he did Timothy? Stand by what you just sang? Hold fast to what you just vowed? Don't be a person who gives up on what you've invested in. Do not be ashamed. It's something Paul's going to say about himself in chapter 1, verse 12, that he was not ashamed. Something that he's going to say of, of Onesiphorus in chapter, in chapter 1, verse 16. He says of Timothy, be one who's not ashamed. Now, there are two things you noticed as we read that Timothy is told not to be ashamed of. Number one, the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ, and number two, of Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ. We'll take the time to look at, momentarily look at both of those prohibitions. Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. I believe that's just another way of saying don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the message that we've been given to deliver. The message that saved you and, and, and saved parts of your family and saved those in Ephesus. Don't back away from that. Don't be ashamed of it. Well, what aspect of the gospel, what aspect of the testimony of our Lord was Paul worried that Timothy might be ashamed of? Well, maybe he was thinking the facts of the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Was the resurrection, or the, 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 the crucifixion of Jesus, was it not a stumbling block in foolishness in both the Jew and Gentile world? Was it something that, 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 that as we think about it today, that, that made Christianity attractive, or was it something that turned people off? Well, in the first century, a lot of times it turned people off. A, a crucified Messiah, a, a defeated head of the church, a, a lamb slain. There was nothing about that attractive. In the Gentile world, it was just pure foolishness. And maybe Timothy was ashamed or potentially ashamed of the message, the facts of the gospel. Maybe it was that Paul didn't want Timothy to be afraid of the authority of Jesus over his life. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord to call him your ruler and maker. To, to vow to him your allegiance. After all, he's a crucified man. He, he's rejected in Jewish circles, in Gentile circles. Why would you accept him? Maybe it was that Paul was worried Timothy would be ashamed of the implications of the gospel. The way it would change your affections and your agenda. The way it would take your eyes off of things that people on the earth thought were most important, such as prestige and fame and money and leisure, and put it on things that rested far beyond this life and far be above the mundane and routine. I don't know exactly what it was. Paul was worried that Timothy would be ashamed you know one of the earliest renderings of the cross, artistic renderings of the cross, is a piece known as the Alexa Monus Gravito or Gravita. It's a picture depicting a man standing at the foot of what looks like a cross, worshiping or bowing before a crucifixion where the man had the head of a donkey. And the inscription said, Alexamonus worships his God. And that's how the Gentile world saw the teaching of the crucifixion. That's how they made fun of it, belittled it, and challenged it. 
Paul says, you don't need to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Just a side note, don't miss the fact that Paul was not a prisoner of Rome. This passage was not a prisoner of, of, of the Jews. He was not a prisoner of the current system or society. He was a prisoner of the Lord. He was in jail because the Lord had brought him to do things that it landed him there. That's where his prison, that's where his sentence lied. That's where his debt was. But Paul was an embarrassment to a lot of people. We see him as the champion of Christianity, the author of, of more books in the New Testament than anyone, the, the great traveled apostle, the one who gave his life as a martyr. But to the world that Paul lived in, he was embarrassment. He was a man who was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, Pharisee of the Pharisees, trained at the greatest schools. And what did he do with all that education? What did he do with all that fame and notoriety, with all that, 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 that understanding and learning? Threw it out the window. That's what Paul said about it. He counted it loss to gain Christ. A man with, with such future and such promise and such devotion, he was embarrassment to the Jewish world. And I would assume, unless you heard him preach and obeyed the gospel, he was an embarrassment to the Gentile world. I mean, no one likes a traitor in any circle. In any place. Paul had devoted his life so much to the killing of Christians that we have record of that in the book of Acts. And now he's defending them. The world doesn't respect, generally respect that kind of thing. Paul was a man who was disrespected. Who was an embarrassment. And sometimes even to those in the church. Read the book of 2 Corinthians. And read all the charges that were leveled at Paul because he suffered. Because he didn't take money to share the gospel. Because he worked to earn his own way on many occasions. Even to the church, sometimes Paul's an embarrassment. And yet, Paul tells Timothy, you cannot be afraid of me any more than you're ashamed of me, any more than you're ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I kind of wonder if this prohibition was personal and practical in nature. Later in the book, you remember what Paul's going to ask Timothy to do for him? He's going to say, I pray that you come before winter. When you come see me, bring, bring me my cloak and my books, especially the parchments. Do you suppose there might have been a thought in Timothy's mind about not going? I mean, the way we generally present this is, Timothy loves Paul, Paul loves Timothy. Paul has Timothy to come. Timothy can't wait to journey all the way across the world to get to Rome and fight persecution and weather. To see his mentor in prison about to die. You know, it might be that Timothy thought to himself, you know, I'm pretty busy here in Ephesus. I got a lot of stuff on my plate. I got a lot of things to do. I got a lot of deadlines to meet. Maybe somebody else can go see Paul. I'm not sure that trip's for me. Paul may have been encouraging Timothy for one primary reason, and that is if he lost heart, he wouldn't come see him. And Paul wanted to look Timothy in the eyes again before he died. It was a practical and personal request. Don't desert me. Don't be ashamed of me and of the gospel that you preach, but come and see me. You know, just a note, as we finish up this concept of prohibition and move on to the next section of of exhortations, I believe that we as members of the Lord's Church and as preachers of the Lord's Church have spent a lot more time encouraging ministers of the gospel than we do tearing them down. And a lot more time 
having faith and trust in them than we do being suspicious of them. If a man's preaching and teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, that man deserves our respect and lack of shame. I believe that's expressly revealed in this concept of these opening verses, these opening thoughts of our text this morning. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor be ashamed of me, Paul says. Second section of exhortations that he might relay to Timothy would help him not to be ashamed are forceful imperatives, and there are three of them. There are three forceful imperatives. After, after you have the prohibition, he begins a series of imperatives. He begins it immediately in the text in verse 8. Notice he says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering. That's the first of those. There are three. You're going to find one here in verse 8. You're going to have to drop down to verses 13 and 14 to find the two others. They are the words retain and guard or keep and protect. And so here, here are the three exhortations by way of imperative. Join, retain, and guard. Friends, that's the opposite of what it means to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord and his prisoner. And all three of these tie to one of those two thoughts, either being unashamed of the gospel or unashamed of the messenger of the gospel. For example, instead of being ashamed of Paul, what Timothy was supposed to do was join in his sufferings with him. The word that's found there in this passage is, is one singular word in the Greek. And it it literally means to bear evil treatment alongside of another. It doesn't necessarily mean to to look at and have pity on someone who's suffering. To be able to say to them, you know, a few years ago I suffered the same thing. It's not even to say that if I'm ever put in that position, I'll suffer just like you. No, the concept is you join in that suffering. You put yourself in the middle of it. You participate with it. The same type of concept and and wording is used when when we think about sharing in the sufferings of Christ in Philippians 3 and verse 10. I want to know Christ and to share in his sufferings with him. But what does the Bible say in 1 Corinthians 12 about, about the church? If one member suffers, what? We all suffer. We all join in with that. We don't set someone off to the side, hold them in suspicion, talk about them in derision, shun them because of embarrassment. No, we share with them in that. We sit with them in that. I don't think there's any doubt. Paul's telling Timothy, you get to Rome, and you come to where I am, and you sit with me. Have you ever ever had to do that? Someone in a situation like that who's been arrested or put in prison? Maybe, maybe who's, who's had to, to go into to drug or alcohol rehab, and you go and you sit with them, and, and, and if you were to think about it from the, the stigma of the world, it would feel like you were out of place and maybe even a little embarrassed you had to be where you were. Paul said, Timothy, you get here, and you sit with me, and you share in my sufferings. You join in that with me as a comfort and solidarity. Now, what, what the text today and our, our direction doesn't allow us to do is to flesh out verses 9 down through about verse um, 11. And I'm, I'm a little bit 
put out by that. And that's my own making, my own direction of choice. But I don't know if there's a, a, a more succinct description of the grace of God in all of Scripture than is found in verses 9 through 11. In that passage, you have that, that Paul was a, a recipient of sovereign grace. God chose him. Eternal grace from all eternity. Visible grace through the appearing of Jesus and victorious grace by abolishing, abolishing death and, and bringing light. But know this. All those things that Paul received in grace were taunt, turned on against him in suffering. The suffering came because of the grace. Have you ever thought about that? We tend to want it the opposite way. I suffer, I want God's grace to come to me so I don't suffer anymore. Paul's life was just the opposite. God showered grace, God showered grace, and suffering came. And God showered more and more suffering came. And so in reality, if you don't join in the sufferings of Paul, Timothy, you're probably not going to benefit from the grace of God along the way. They were one and the same in the life of Paul. What did they make Paul? They made Paul, according to verse 11, a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. A herald that Christ is coming. A teacher of his message. And one who went out all over the world to share both of those thoughts with people. Don't be ashamed of me, but join in my sufferings. And then he would say, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Instead, retain what you've been given and guard what's in your heart. Two amazing descriptions found in these last two uh, imperatives in, in, in verses 13 and 14. The gospel is a standard of sound words, a treasury deposited in the human heart to be dispensed by the human tongue, and so retain it. Did you notice that? Look at the passage. We, we didn't read it together. Look at the passage. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which, which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which, is in, which has been entrusted to you. Do you notice how he was to retain those words? If I were to ask you today, are you going to keep your Bible? Are you going to keep sound words with you? The answer probably would be sure, because I'm going to carry around a copy of the Bible physically. I'm going to carry one electronically. I'm going to have one on my home computer. I'm going to have two or three more on a shelf. I'm going to retain the pattern of sound words. That's not what he, that's not what he means. Notice what he says, you retain the sound words which you have heard. Timothy didn't have a New Testament to put in his, in his coat pocket, to download onto his phone, to carry with him. It was up to him mentally to engage the word of God, to commit it to memory, to, to let it resonate in his heart, and hold on fast to that word that had been given. If it were up to us, without a copy of the word of God, to retain the pattern of sound words simply in our memory bank or in our heart. How committed would we be to do it? I've spent a lot of money in my life on Bibles. In fact, if you look through the course of comparison, I may have spent more money on Bibles than I have time memorizing the text itself. They're everywhere, available, online, free, handed out, in hotel rooms can have a thousand copies of scripture and not retain the pattern of sound words handed to us he suggests that it's committed to the heart and to the memory and once it's there you guard that you guard that something really really interesting and, and neat about the text is that god provides an example of what it means to guard in verse 12 paul says i've committed something to god and i'm confident he will guard that until the end of time 
And then he uses that same word and tells Timothy, you guard what God's put in you. So God serves as my supreme example of someone who can hold on to the treasure entrusted to him. And then he says in verse 14 that he's given the Holy Spirit to help in the, in the guarding of that in Timothy's heart. So if Timothy decides not to retain the pattern of sound words, if he decides not to guard the treasure, he's rejecting not only the example of God in verse 12, but the help of God in verse 14. Timothy doesn't have to do this by himself. It's not only up to him. Listen, you follow the example of God, you lean upon the power of the Spirit, and you guard that which has been entrusted to you. So Paul encourages Timothy to not be ashamed with a preemptive prohibition, with forceful imperatives, and we won't spend a lot of time here at all, but by living examples in verses 15 through 18. Living examples. Onesiphorus is the one who loved Paul and remained faithful to God and to God's messenger. But Jealous and Hermogenes were the two who didn't. And in essence, Paul was saying, which one are you going to be like? Who are you going to follow? I don't know why these three men got selected out of everybody else. Paul had a few others, no doubt, that were still faithful to his calling and to his cause. And all of Asia had turned against him. So why these two? Why this one? I don't know. But I know now they stand in Scripture for all time as a litmus test. Who are you going to be like? Which one are you going to choose? The one who, who shies away and shuns away and, and, and cowers in, in shame? Or the one who defends and promotes the gospel and its teachers? So what's the application? Before we offer the invitation, before we encourage those who've never obeyed the gospel to obey the gospel, before we sing to, to, to offer people an opportunity to, to admit wrongdoing or to ask for prayers, what's the application for us? Well, obviously, in the general thought, it's let's not be ashamed of the gospel, nor of its messengers, right? That's pretty obvious and understandable. I want you to think about something, though, as we make the application a little more real and a little more personal. You see, sometimes, in fact, I believe most of the time, the shame that we feel that makes us cower away from faithfulness, from defending truth, from defending those who defend truth, rests as much in our own insecurities about our own life as it does about other people. See, shame originates in the world because of sin. You can follow that theme in the garden. Everything was perfect, everything was great, nothing was wrong. Sin entered the world, the Bible says... That Adam and Eve, before sin in the world, that they were naked and not ashamed. And you won't read that about mankind beyond that. Because when sin enters, shame comes along. And when I do wrong, when I, when I fail to live up to what I'm expected to be, when, 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 I, when I fall short of what God wants me to be, when I see my flaws, when I know that I'm, I'm frail, I live out that shame rather than having it covered by the blood of Christ and in turn, I project that onto others. I see their faults. I, I highlight them. If I can take care of the guilt that I feel, I believe I would be in a much better place in defending the testimony of our Lord and those messengers of his who share it. I heard a story this week about a water bearer who had 
two water buckets, long pole that stretched across his back as he would fill them up and carry them. One of the water buckets was whole, without crack, without flaw. And if one was without crack, without flaw, you can probably guess what the other one was. It's crack and flaw. So the water bearer would make his way to the well. He would draw water. He would fill those two buckets up. He would walk toward the master's house to dump the water. When he got to the house, he would always find one bucket completely full and the other bucket half empty. And this went on for a couple of years. By the way, this is a, a fictitious story because at the end of those two years, that cracked water bucket turned to the water bearer and in shame apologized for the cracks and the flaws. Bearing the guilt of not being what the other water bucket was. And, and in this exchange from, from, from this water bearer to the bucket, the, the water bearer tried to say, listen, I've used you to the best of your ability. You have nothing to be ashamed of. He said, in fact, as we travel back down toward that well, I want you to look at your path. I want, to tell, I want you to tell me what you see. And so they traveled down that, back down that path. And they got to the end, back to the well, and, and he asked the flawed bucket, the flawed, the flawed water pot, what did you see? And he said, I saw flowers blooming and I saw beautiful nature. He said, you know why? Because for these two years, I have carried you. And along the way, as we went back to the master's house, you have been the watering source for all of those flowers and all that vegetation. I took the flaw that you had, and I used it to the betterment of the estate. And friends, when we look in the mirror, I'm sure we see, if we're honest, we see the flaws that we carry. And we bear the shame. Of not always living up to what God wants us to be. And in that shame and in that frustration and in that shortcoming. We become instinctively and unnecessarily judgmental toward others who have those same flaws. If we would just remember. God uses broken water pots every single day. The world is more beautiful because you're in it, spiritually speaking. God's accomplished great things because you committed your life to him. Friends, if you bear the shame of sin and reproach, shortcomings, of uncertainty, don't leave here today with those. But have them covered over by the blood of Christ. Admit those shortcomings. Deal with those flaws. Now, you, won't, you won't be whole. No one is the perfect other side of the equation. The water's going to leak out. The problem's going to come. But I've been called to live a life unashamed. Not because I'm great, but the one who carries me puts me in the right places. He gives me the right opportunities. Provides me with the right advantages. Saved me by his sovereign grace. Gave, given me victory in Christ. And allowed me to just serve where I am. Friends, if you're carrying the, built, the guilt and the shame of brokenness, make it right. And then in turn, defend the God who saved you and the people that share him to the world. Let's stand and sing the song of invitation again.